Hey everyone, my name is Nick Wignall, and you're listening to the Minds and Mics podcast. On this show, I talk with experts in the fields of psychology, behavioral science, and human potential, and try to see the world through their eyes. How do they think differently about topics as diverse as addiction and mindfulness to parenting and motivation? What do they know that most of us don't? And what can we learn from them to improve our own lives in practical, meaningful ways? Dr. Caitlin Foss is a professor of human development and a certified life coach who specializes in overeating, among other things. In this conversation, Caitlin and I try to dive deep on the psychology behind problematic eating behavior and emotional eating specifically. New diets and trendy programs are a dime a dozen, but truly understanding problems with overeating and making lasting changes requires that we get inside our own heads and try to better understand not just what we eat, but why we do it. Caitlin Foss, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. It's great to be here. So let's start off with having you talk a little bit about your background. Um, Specifically, what I really want to know is how does an academic psychologist get into moonlighting as a life coach who specializes in overeating? Yes, it's so fascinating. So my background's in human development and family studies. That's what my PhD's in. And I've always been interested in self-help and psychology in general and the idea that we're improving our lives. And so I actually started uh, helping people with their careers and doing a lot of academic coaching, that type of thing. And my clients were coming to me with other issues as well. And I realized, oh, like they have life issues that are happening and they're concerned about the overeating that they're doing and how that's actually getting in the way of the academic work that they want to do. Like they want to write papers, but they're distracted with things over here, like procrastination and overeating and over drinking. So uh, when I added my certification from the life coach school, I was like, this is the complete package. This is how to help my clients in the best way possible. Now we're tackling their thoughts and their feelings, not just their actions and results. Very cool. So it seems like you, from what I've read and watched of some of your work, it seems like you make a deliberate point to use the term overeating to describe what you help people with. And I want to focus on this because I think with so many other labels that you could apply to this issue, dieting, weight loss, stuff like that, why, why is that term, like why, why have you kind of settled on that term specifically? Yeah, for a lot of people and a lot of my clients, they don't necessarily want to lose weight or they have some weight to lose, but the word weight loss is so loaded with a lot of implications that overeating, a lot of people identify with overeating, even if they're at their ideal weight. And the other piece of that is weight loss also implies that we're not healthy and that we should be striving for weight loss. We should be striving to be thin, which is part of our culture. And I do really believe in that model of health at every size and focusing on our health. And for my clients, when they're talking about what they seem to struggle with or what they're uh, embarrassed about, it often comes to the overeating and uh, having jelly beans or like sneaking food behind their partners or their kids' backs and feeling like I'm the only one who does this. It's like, it's actually pretty common. A lot of people overeat. So that language makes it more inclusive. Yeah. I, I, what I really appreciate about it too, as a psychologist, is that it it sort of keeps the emphasis on 
the immediate action rather than like the long-term sort of like goal or aspiration. Um, even if your goal is weight loss, you, you can't just, you can't lose weight. There's no like knob you, you can turn, right? Just, it's, it's about what actions can I take that will eventually lead to that if that's my goal or being healthy. So I, I sort of like that too, that it, it keeps it very like front and center on what's something that's under my control, like the, the actual behavior of eating. Yeah, because clients that I help, sometimes we can do that in an hour or like three weeks. I just helped somebody. We were doing 20-minute sessions. In three weeks, she has completely changed her overeating that she was doing right after work when she went home. And that's all it took, right? Because we were working on her mindset and it wasn't that even that lengthy of a process or the idea of her overall health goals for the next five years. It was like, let's talk about the overeating that you're doing at 5 p.m. Right. Nice and specific. So I want to get into um, some more kind of specifics and and details. But first, let me let me kind of open it up with a kind of a big question, which is, if you had to say, like, what's the what's the biggest struggle you see for people who are trying to stop overeating? Like if you had to kind of pick out one particular kind of obstacle or struggle, what would that be? Yes, it's that they are pushing down feelings. And they're coping with Uh, the feelings that they don't want to feel by overeating. And so many people don't recognize that this is the pattern they're in. They think they're just standing in the kitchen eating and they don't quite know why. And gaining that awareness and like, wait a minute, I'm doing this because I'm trying to stuff down feelings and comfort myself. That's why I'm doing this. That's probably everybody's struggle with it of, oh, how'd I end up here? This isn't just mindless. This isn't just an idea I had. I'm probably pushing something down and I need to tackle that. Yeah. Can you, so talk a little bit more about that, like the specifics of that, like in terms of what, like what types of feelings do people typically use eating to kind of push down? And and what does that mean exactly? Like push down? Mm -hmm. I think of pushing down as resisting. So they are, uh, if you think about a beach ball and we push it down underwater, the beach ball are our feelings. So common feelings would be stress, uh, anxiety, uh, even sadness or anger. People are pushing those down, pushing the beach ball underwater. And it's a lot of work to, to push the beach ball down and hold it down there. And we're doing it like we're getting away from them with food. And so it, hangs out down there. And then often that beach ball pops back up on us. And we're like, wait a minute. I thought eating all those Oreos helped. It didn't. I was pushing down my stress and now stress is back. Where did it come from? I don't know why it's here. I'm going to eat again to comfort it temporarily and get away from it. But like, we know this isn't a long-term strategy for it. So the beach ball pops back up and we're surprised rather than oh, wait a minute, if I let this beach ball flow on the water, I can actually see it coming for me. I can see stress coming for me with that thought pattern. Or uh, like, look, here it is right here. And it's okay that it's floating next to me. I don't have to get away from it or push it down. Yeah. So I I was going to, my follow-up question was going to be, which maybe sounds like kind of a dumb question, but I think there's actually a lot to it, which is what's, um, why do we try and push down feelings like that? Like, why do we try and push down anxiety or stress or like what, what are kind of common when you kind of dive into this with clients, what do you kind of uncover when you, when you look at that? Like why people specifically are pushing away these feelings? Oh yeah. They're super uncomfortable. 
Nobody likes to feel those things because it feels uncomfortable and like we should get away from it. And a lot of people are really hesitant to uh, open up to stress. For example, like if I allow this feeling, then I'm never going to get out of it. I'm never going to be able to uh, get out from under stress. So why don't I push it away instead? When really, if we allow it in, that's when it can come and go and leave us and we're okay with it. Resistance is more work than letting it be there. Right. So I, I want to get more into that, that idea of letting it be there. But, but you just, you had two really great answers, which is, or actually three, one of which I think we all kind of realize is that it's uncomfortable. Like, it doesn't feel good to feel anxious, right? It's uncomfortable. It's painful even, right? But at the same time, there's, sometimes there's these beliefs that like, not only is it uncomfortable, but it's bad. Like, it's like, it's wrong mm -hmm. if I feel anxious or sad, right? Um, or like you said, if, if I don't do something, this will last I don't know, maybe forever, maybe it'll get worse. And so there's kind of this action bias where when it comes, which is pretty normal. If you think about it in normal life, it seems to me most of the time when we encounter a problem, taking action on it helps, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but there's this weird thing with, with emotions where if you sometimes, and, and I want to get your thoughts on this. Why, so why is it better with those kind of painful or uncomfortable emotions to not necessarily try to do anything with them? Like, how is that helpful? Yeah, when we actually allow it, then yeah. it's like a wave that passes through us. So if all emotions are vibrations in our body, it's vibrating through our body and stress feels really uncomfortable. And so when we eat, we try to stop the vibration and it's just energy moving through us. But we're trying to like make it stop, make it stand still by eating and filling ourselves up with food to temporarily make it stop. But if we allow it to go through us, it's just a wave that comes over us. It's like, oh, yeah, this can pass instead of getting stuck in my body. Yeah. So part of what I hear there is that it's, it's about, it's really, it's about learning how emotions really work, like what mm -hmm. kind of what their nature is. And what I kind of hear you saying is that they're more transitory than a lot of us, I think, kind of believe initially. Oh, 100%. The 90 seconds, right, is the research about how long it takes a, an emotion to pass through us if we allow it and let it go. Now, we will ruminate in thoughts that will keep generating the feeling for us. So it lasts not longer than 90 seconds if we keep generating thoughts that create that feeling. But it is so fun and amazing to help clients feel a feeling because they'll think, we're not going to have time for this. I'm like, just trust me. I'm holding the space for you. Like you feel this and tell me about where it is in your body and going through that work with them. It is about 90 seconds that it passes through and they're like, oh, it wasn't that bad after all. I've been doing all that work to get away from that. It's not that bad. Right. Yeah. It's such a kind of confidence building, empowering thing to, to approach your your emotions and sort of let them happen and realize they're not often they're not nearly as terrible as that story we had going in our in our heads about what they were going to be like which which kind of brings me to another important question so we've talked about a little bit the, the relationship between the sort of behavior of eating and emotions and how those are related but you've brought up a couple times the idea of thoughts so kind of bring that variable into the equation like how do in your experience working with overeating, how do thoughts play a role in this relationship between 
overeating and emotion. Yeah. So if overeating is the action, right before that is the feeling that we're usually avoiding. That's why we overeat. And so before the feeling is the thought that generated that emotion. And so we might be thinking like, I have so much to do. Uh, I don't have enough time. Or this is a really big project. Or you start thinking about a pandemic and uh, how we're coping with it. And right, like we generate these thoughts. That's what brings on the emotion. It comes like our thoughts are coming from neutral circumstances. The circumstances themselves are neutral, but we assign meaning. We're meaning making machines and we love to generate thoughts that then create those feelings. Hmm. Yeah. So, but, but that, I think that's a, a non-obvious point for a lot of people that, you know, I think emotions are kind of mysterious to a lot of people. And, and it's often, at least in my work, it's often surprising when I kind of show and explain that, that the play, uh, emotions come from the way we think about things, kind of the story we, like you said, the meaning we attribute to things. So can you, using this kind of model you're describing, can you walk through, like taking that example of someone who gets home from eat, gets home from work and stress eats um, right after they get home? Like what, how might that model kind of look in that example if you walk us through it? Yeah, so they've come home, uh, like circumstance is they've come in the door and there's three children who are, uh, active and we'll say running around the house. And it seems like activity, like children activity. And I'm being vague about it in the circumstance line because circumstances have to be the neutral facts. So however you want to picture three children running around a house and like, we would all agree that's what's happening. They're all running around. A person may have a thought of like, this is too much, or here we go again, or I can't take this. Um, thoughts like that, that generate stress for themselves. And they're like, oh, I need to get away from this stress. They're not actively thinking, perhaps, but they find, I mean, they are, we're slowing down the model. Let's say that. We're slowing down the model. So they find themselves in the pantry, like eating chips or eating the Oreos or uh, having a bunch of peanuts. And they're kind of like, wait a minute, why am I eating these? But they didn't tie it back to, oh, I walked in the door and I started thinking thoughts about what happened when I walked in the door. And that's why I feel stressed. It just feels so automatic for most of my clients. Right. So so it seems like a big sort of utility of this, the model is helping people to see that the, the missing link, I think, for a lot of people is the the thoughts, in part because they're so internal and they're so fast, right? Mm-hmm. So So how do you once you've kind of explained this model, how do you, is there kind of a practical application of it? Like, what do you, what do you encourage your clients to do with it when it comes to their overeating? Yeah. So the first step is awareness when we're in the moment. So people can talk about last night, like, oh, I knew I was sitting there eating popcorn, watching Netflix. And that, you know, they might have this idea that they did that, but I want them to know why did you do it? Why were you sitting there? Is it you think you're there because you always do it or you noticed, oh, I told myself I wasn't going to do it. And then I went and made the popcorn and made it happen. It's like, let's pinpoint those moments so that you gain awareness that it's happening. So that's often the first step, awareness that it's happening. Oh, how did I end up in the kitchen? Or how did I end up eating that whole bag of something? 
And the idea is that if, if you do that with clients kind of enough after the fact, the, the more they kind of practice it, the better they get it catching themselves kind of in the moment, it sort of translates to them being able to have that awareness yes. at the time. Yes. And then they're paying attention for the next time it happens. And and we start to see patterns. Often people aren't aware of their patterns until I show them the patterns of like, okay, so did you do that the night before? Did it happen? Uh, like when else did this happen? Or we're having a conversation and I'm able to say, they'll say, I don't know why I'm overeating. And then in the, as the conversation goes on, it, they reveal that, oh, and I had a big work deadline that happened on Tuesday, and I've been thinking about it ever since. And I was like, oh, right. See how this is tied to your overeating? So awareness of like, oh, that's the pattern that I've been establishing. That's what's happening. That's the first step. Gotcha. Because you... you you can't going back to what we talked about before you can't be um, you can't stop pushing down the emotion and just be willing to let it ride out unless you are aware that that's going on in the first place that 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 you're having thoughts that are generating these emotions in the first place is that right right and that you've been in the kitchen <laughs> yeah right <laughs> yes um so you've one of the things you kind of talk about and write a lot about um, that I've picked up on is the importance of creating um, options for when it comes to healthy eating and sort of awareness about that, about, about multiple options. So can you talk a little bit about that, about the idea of options and optionality and why that's really important? So once you're aware and you know that it's stress that I'm avoiding, like, oh, here I am reaching for the bag of chips because I'm stressed out. Okay. Now, can I feel this in my body, do a body scan can I walk away from the kitchen and start to manage my urge to eat, to man to process that emotion? Um, and can I start to establish a routine for myself to manage these urges? And so um, tracking can be really helpful for this of, oh, I had the urge to eat something and here's what happened. Why? What was I feeling? What was... Um, the emotion that was coming up. Can I examine the thought? Oh yeah. Okay. Maybe I don't have to think that same thought when I walk in the door. I can start to change that thought and choose intentional thoughts when I walk in the door and see three kids running around. Uh, that's one way. If we're already, uh, you know, it's that balance between I'm going to process my emotion and allow what's already there because I was thinking this and now I'm ready for a new thought. Yeah. How does that, that idea of um, intentional thoughts unpack that a little bit? What does that look like? Mm -hmm. So something else I could be thinking that generates a different feeling. So for my overeating clients, it's often curiosity that they want to generate, like, or I encourage them to generate. It doesn't have to be excitement or determination, but curiosity can be a great bridge that if we think something like, I wonder what else I could do. I wonder how I could not stand in the kitchen. I wonder um, if I could wait this out. I wonder what else I could do, right? Like all these I wonder statements give us curiosity and then we're able to think of actions. The beauty in helping my clients is they have all kinds of action ideas that they want to take in that they know these ideas, but they just have to access their own curiosity to be able to get there. I don't even have to give them ideas for actions often. They have, they know what they want to do. 
And then they're like, oh, I could try this. I could try that once they feel curiosity. Yeah. And almost if I had to sum all this up, it almost sounds like it's sort of step one is like pause and be aware, slow down and then get curious. And, and if you, if you're able to do that, it, it almost sounds like what you're saying is that better alternatives will sort of present themselves if you, yes. if you can do those first few things. Now, so here's the, let me play devil's advocate to, let's suppose someone's listening to this and they're going like, God, I don't know. Like, this seems like, seems kind of overwhelming. This is a lot of stuff. Like, I, I'm, do I pause first and then I become aware? Or do I like thoughts, emotions? What, how, do you ever get resistance like this? Like that it, yeah, it's a lot of work to, to kind of push down our emotions, but kind of tracking thoughts and feelings and being curious. And like, that kind of seems like a lot too. Like how, how do you respond to that? Mm-hmm. So if we're feeling overwhelmed or confused of like, I don't know about this, that's another model that we're running where we're actually indulging in emotions. We call these indulgent emotions because they get us stuck and we don't take productive action from confusion or overwhelm. And so our brains actually love to go over to that spot and just be like, I don't know, I got to think about this because that, even though it's uncomfortable, like nobody likes to be overwhelmed or confused, but we like it better than solving for our problem, you know, or like actually having to feel the stress or the anxiety, we will do anything to get away from our feelings in a lot of ways. And one of those things we'll do is kind of put on a blanket of an indulgent feeling of overwhelm or confuse. So it's like, we don't have to be confused about this, right? Like I can figure this out. I can learn how to take these next steps. It's probably much simpler than I think. I just have to start with paying attention tonight when I walk in the door. Right. And one of the things too, I talk with my clients about is that it like learning any kind of new skill it, 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 there is some friction at first and it is, it does require kind of going back to your notes or trying to remember. Um, but like anything, if just doing it a little bit and you, it's it, often, it's surprising how quickly you pick up on stuff and you give it, I, I use the example of learning how to drive and like, remember how overwhelming it feels when you're first sit down in a car and you're like, there's a million little dials and gauges and levers and stuff like, and all these rules of the road. How am I going to remember all this stuff? But then, you know, often within a few weeks, you're like, not even thinking about it. You learned it so well. So I think I have to think that too. It, it can seem a little overwhelming, but that's, it's not necessarily a great excuse to say, oh, forget about it. Um, because you can learn relatively quickly, I think. Absolutely. Especially when you want to. And what you're talking about, those two, uh, I think of cognitive psychology, the two systems in our brain of automatic things that we do that we have become automatic with time like eating, not overeating actually becomes automatic with time and like eating what's on your protocol or your plan uh, or eat, just eating what you say you're going to eat. And only that becomes automatic with practice compared to when we're in the beginning and just trying to figure it out. It just takes so much more brain energy that our brain's like, no, could we not do this? Because you're going to use up precious calories to go after this skill. I'm not so sure we should do that is kind of what it's saying because it always wants to preserve energy, be a little bit lazy, just stay in the cave, not go out and learn new things. Let's just stay safe. <laughs> yeah. So the, the other piece of resistance that I think comes up, the other kind of argument our brain throws at us that I know you've, you've talked a lot about is, 
it's the willpower argument, which is, oh, I don't know. All this seems like a lot. I'm just, you know what? When, when I get to, you know, 5 p.m. when I walk through the door, I'm just going to, I'm going to get tough with myself and I'm, I'm just going to kind of willpower my way through it. Um, what, what's the problem with the, uh, the willpower strategy in, in your opinion when it comes to overeating? Yes. It's just like grinding it out and I'm just going to make this happen. It often backfires on us. It's another way of uh, trying to force ourselves to do something and it works temporarily. So I love the researchers who talk about this of um, if you if you're a rider on an elephant, like a human on an elephant, you can the like the human is very small, but if it has the reins, it can direct the elephant and tell it where to go and the elephant will do what it wants. But if you make the elephant mad or you're just keep yelling at it, you're trying to kind of whip it into shape. The elephant is just like, nope, I'm out. And that's part of what happens with willpower of just we try to force it instead of, hmm, how could I get clever about how to get this elephant across the room? Uh, it's kind of that. It's, it's also it's why so many clients struggle at night with overeating. They're like, I make it all day. And then at night I struggle. And it's like, yeah, because you've actually been pushing and forcing all day. And then your brain slipped in and kind of said, Hey, I found my opportunity. Can we, you know, do what we want now? Yes. Let's go for it. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So one of my kind of switching gears here, one of my favorite quotes I've heard from you is we are overweight because we overeat and we overeat because we overdesire. Can you unpack that a little bit, especially this, this idea of desire? Like how does desire fit into what we've been talking about? Yes. So dopamine, um, one of our uh, neurotransmitters, we are, you know, one of these things that we're focused on, our dopamine response in our brain is like every time we uh, learn, every time we get something that we enjoy. So like back to the Oreo, we eat the Oreo and we're like, mm, that tastes really good. And our brain, the dopamine responds, like we get this rush kind of of like, yes, that tasted really good. And our brain learns that that's something we should repeat. And so we're uh, making that link. We're establishing that neural connection there, making a highway, you know, super highway of if you eat Oreos, then you gain pleasure. And so we start to desire more and more of that. And we all know this in some fashion. Because we'll be like, oh, I could eat one Hershey kiss, but then I found myself eating two and three and four. And we start to go down this path of, wait a minute, why do I keep eating more? Because the brain starts to desire more and it's like, please give me more dopamine. How about we do that again? And it doesn't know its limit. The brain's just like, let's do more. We can't see a problem with this. Let's enjoy it and I bet if we have even more of it, we'll feel even better. And so it temporarily works, but then we find ourselves with too much food, too much alcohol, too much social media. People will see this with maybe you have 10 tabs open and a video is playing in the background. You got the TV on. It's like your brain loves the overstimulation, but in the long run, it's not really paying off for you. Yeah, I think that's, it's really interesting because I think most of us, when we think about desire, we, we think about desire preceding 
action, which I think is true. You know, we, we desire Oreos and then we, we go get them. Um, but it, it's, it's also what you're sort of suggesting is that even if we've built up a strong desire for something that's ultimately not healthy for us, you can kind of reverse the process that not only does that does desire lead to action, but if you change your actions, your desire will change as well. You can sort of undo that over desire for something by, by changing, yeah, by changing your actions and not getting that sort of hit of reward or reinforcement afterward. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And that's probably the toughest moment. Those are the toughest moments because your brain will just keep screaming at you like, no, the Oreos, remember those make Mm -hmm. us feel good. You're like, but we're not having them. And it's like, uh, no, but do you remember how good they are? But as you down regulate that desire with time, then you find yourself, oh, I don't need something as sweet. And so I've done a lot of this work with sugar and a lot of people find themselves having a lot of sugar and they just consume more and more and more. It's like we've broken that link between, um, oh, there's too much here. Like I actually have too much in my body and it doesn't, act, it doesn't like it in the long term. And so if we scale back and you can do this slowly, it's part of why going cold turkey for so many people is so hard, but if you do it slowly, the brain kind of doesn't notice as much. And then it's like, oh yeah, look, I get a lot of delight out of this unsweetened tea that I'm drinking. Look at that. I don't even need five Oreos because eating one Oreo is super sweet and almost over the top at this point. Yeah, I, I just think that's such an important idea that we we kind of take for granted that that desire is not just this inevitable thing that we have to deal with. It's actually something that can be shaped and changed and modified. Um, I think that it. Go ahead. Yeah, well, and that's the what makes the overeating work so important. It, and all of these areas where we tend to overdo it is because if you can downregulate the desire for food, you can increase your desire for other things in your life. Like really little things start to seem super meaningful and just feel really delightful. Like delighting in the sunrise and the sunset sounds really cliche, but when you're not getting your delight and um, you've built up so much desire for certain foods or sugar or drinking, it's like, oh, yeah, this is really delightful. Look at that. I don't need to keep buying more things or buying more food to make myself feel better. I think that's such an important kind of idea and message because the just the idea of, you know, I want to work on my weight. I want to work on my overeating. I want it can it can feel even though you know it's a good thing overall, it can feel like a very negative process in the sense of not bad, but in the sense of you're just trying to stop doing lots of unhealthy things. But I I love this idea that in the process of doing that, you are also opening yourself up to so many more positive things. So many more, you, I think you've talked about the idea of sort of finding real joy as opposed to false pleasures, mm-hmm. um, which I, I actually can talk a little bit about that distinction and how you use those terms. Yeah. These food items that we attach so much meaning to, like if you've been a person who says, I can't wait for lunch. Like I spent most of my twenties, just like, I can't wait until the next meal. I can't wait until I get to do this. Uh, especially the summer I was a camp counselor and I quickly realized I didn't enjoy spending time with children, but I really loved lunchtime. (laughs) Um, you get this sense of like, 
it's that false pleasure of, oh, I'm putting all of that desire into that when I could put the desire into something I really do enjoy. Um, this opens us up to the possibilities of learning the skill we actually want to learn or accomplishing the goal we really do want to accomplish because it takes away all that mental chatter and brain energy that was being spent on thinking about food or thinking about drinking and puts it towards, oh, look at this thing over here that we actually delight in. And what if life is a lot simpler than we think it is, but we ad- we've added so many things on top of it with food and drinking and buying and social media that we, th- that we have built all that up and realized it's false. It's like a house of cards. And if we knock it down, we're like, oh, look, look around me. Look at that sunrise. Look at taking a walk with my family. Look at um, the simple thing I do that does really make me laugh. Petting my dogs, right, is super enjoyable now because I tore down the house of cards of false pleasures. Gotcha. That's great. So I want to kind of switch gears here again to some reader questions. Um, I have a handful of reader questions specifically for you. So do you mind if we do that? Let's do it. All right. So number one, is listen to your body really good advice? Like there are plenty of times when my body says, yes, we want that second serving of pie. So how do I know when to trust my body or ignore it? I thought this was a great question. (laughs) That is, that's such a good question because we get the advice to like, listen to your body and tune in. Now as someone, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners are highly educated and listen to podcasts, right? And consume a lot of material. We are a group of overthinkers. Like we have really strengthened the muscle of our brain to think, think, think. And so it can often be hard for a lot of us to feel what's going on in our bodies, to recognize what emotion is actually passing through us. And that takes time. We talk about this as like, you might have a master's degree or a PhD, but in thinking, But in the feelings work, you're probably back in kindergarten and you need to step back and get really simple and think about what's going on here. Like color your worksheet and pay attention. Is this a moment when my body just wants something because it wants that dopamine hit or does it truly desire the second piece of pie or is it just looking for more right of the same? Only you can answer that when you're able to tune in like truly tune in and stop and think and almost not think but just feel oh wait a minute this is a moment when my primitive brain right the toddler in us is saying I just want more right now because that will feel good temporarily compared to prefrontal cortex planning that's like hey um you know two pieces of pie is not going to feel great tomorrow Right. Yeah. Or even that distinction between, you know, I did um, a few years ago, I got really, it was mostly intellectual. I got really interested in um, intermittent fasting when it first was kind of becoming a thing, maybe five years ago or six or seven years ago. Um, And so I did a couple of these long fasts, like 24, 48 hour fasts. And and one of the things that was really interesting about doing those, I I don't do that regularly anymore, but one of the things I, I really learned from that experience is most of the time when I quote unquote feel hungry or want food, it's, it's not actually a physiological hunger response. 
like it kind of takes a while for of not eating for your body to literally tell you we need more fuel and it's it's a similar but actually distinct feeling from like the sort of homer simpson mm, donuts kind of <laughs> kind of yeah. thing um and i think it's but it's really subtle and it's it's just hard to kind of tease those apart so it, i the, i really like this question because it's it's re- it's really hard it's confusing like yes you do need to listen to your body in some respects but you also sometimes need to ignore some of the signals from your body and it's it just i think it just takes a lot of practice right yeah and the idea so like most of us aren't fat adapted because we don't do fasting and we don't uh, we kind of eat when we want and we don't go for a stretch of time of really tapping into our hunger and thinking about hunger on a scale you know negative 10 to positive 10 if you want or you can scale it how you want the it's like what level of hungry am i right now and how can i listen to my body when it's at negative two and uh, positive two and stay in that band rather than drifting too far out so that I'm starving, right? When people Mm -hmm. talk about like, I'm starving, it's like, how long did you go? And what is your body and brain? Like, what are they trying to tell you right now? Um, Are they looking for sugar or are they looking for, no, we really are very hungry where you're, we need fuel right now. But because most of us aren't fat adapted, we don't have that uh, ability to tune in very often. Yeah. And it, it just reminds me too of our your kind of earlier point about just the importance of slowing down, being self-aware and, and being curious. You know, like it, it sounds to me like what you're saying is the answer to this question is you have to learn to be more kind of aware and curious about what your body's actually telling you. Is that yeah, fair? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So another question here. What is the relationship between stress and weight loss? I've been trying hard to lose weight for a while now and nothing's working, but my life is also very stressful. Um, If there is a stress weight loss correlation, how can I change something to lose weight assuming stress is not going to change radically? Does that make sense? Mm, It does, but it assumes, dear reader, we assume that the stress is a circumstance in this question and that you can't change it. (laughs) And I've But I would bet, you know, we can't put stress in your circumstance line of the model. It's coming from thoughts you're thinking. And I know the reader is going to be like, no, no, listen, you here are the circumstances. I have five children and I work 50 hours a week and I do this and I do that. Right. Like the true circumstance. All right. But you're still thinking thoughts that then create the stress. Somebody else in that situation might be like, this is exactly where I wanted to be. Or, you know, this isn't stressful. Have you met my neighbor down the street that has seven children? Or like examples like that, right? Of, oh, wait a minute. We thought certain situations had to be stressful, but maybe they don't. That being said too, I mean, if we're stressed, we're probably still eating things we shouldn't be eating and stress has that physiological response. We've got the um, cortisol involved. And so I would also ask the reader of, are you, um, are you getting enough sleep at night? A lot of my overeating clients will underestimate the power of sleep in all of this and that a foundation of sleep and regulating stress so that we don't spike our cortisol on a regular basis uh, those are definitely important things to also get curious about. Yeah. Okay. Question number three, 
when it comes to healthy eating, is a cold turkey or middle ground approach best? Meaning, should I try and just eliminate all unhealthy foods from my life entirely? Or should I try to moderate my consumption of stuff like candy, ice cream, junk food, etc.? So obviously, I think this there's no exact right answer, one size fits all. But how do you, in your experience with your clients, how do you think through this sort of dilemma? Yes, I think of it like a snowball. So you need to see some, a lot of people need to see some forward progress and some momentum. So if we start with something small, like the ice cream, and we start to take away ice cream, but you're still having candy, right? But we're like starting to drift away from the ice cream and pay attention to, do we start to eat other things when we've removed ice cream, right? Why are we feeling, why are we avoiding emotions if we're trying to eat this certain food? Uh, all of that, like that process often works for people because then they're able to see, oh, I don't actually need the ice cream. Like maybe I don't also need the candy. And so they're able to scale back instead of for cold turkey. A lot of people, it's too much at once. And their brain just automatically goes to those thoughts of this is too much. What are you doing to me? I, this is the worst. Let's just have some candy, right? Like, so you, you have a that voice in your head is just really screaming loudly for a lot of people when they go to cold turkey. Right. Do you think, um, does past experience generalize in this case? So let's say, let's say someone successfully quit smoking going cold turkey. Is it, do you think that would make it more likely that they would be able to take a cold turkey approach with overeating? So if, if you have, if you're kind of, if you think of yourself as I'm kind of a cold turkey person, or I'm definitely a slow and steady, you know, regular forward progress kind of person. Is it, I think it's safe to generalize that to overeating or is it, or is it maybe kind of take it on a case by case basis? No, I think that, yeah, that it does generalize. So that's why I do all of this work. People are like, how do you do both overeating and over drinking or like procrastination? I'm like, they're all the same tools. It's just different scenarios we're talking about. And so if somebody quit smoking, cold turkey. They're also somebody who has thoughts to help them manage the next time they want to go cold turkey. And so whatever they were thinking in that process, they could dissect that a little bit. I'll do that with clients. Like, remember when you were, you quit that successfully or you stopped doing that activity? What happened there and why did that work? Let's take those things that already worked for you in in another domain and apply them over here to the overeating. Uh, and so it all cascades out and that's part of that snowball. If you start to see progress on the overeating, you realize I can, I'm in control of that elephant, like so much more than I know. I can do so many more amazing things that I only dreamt of that were possibilities in my life. Gotcha. Okay. Another question, obviously our mood and emotions affect our eating behavior, which is true. We've been talking about that a lot. Um, but the, the reader goes on, what about the other way around? What's the impact of specific foods and eating behavior on mood, if anything? So is this something you get a lot? Like, like I, I hear a lot of clients talking about, um, you know, like if I don't, if I don't eat for a couple hours, I get grumpy. And I like, what, what's going on there? Like in your experience, is that, is that a physiological thing? Is that a, is that sort of a circumstance, thoughts, emotions kind of thing? Like, what, what is that relationship between food and mood? 
Yeah, I would slow that down. Like the grumpiness, <laughs> where does that come from? As in your body sending you a hunger signal or is it a thought, I wish I really had food right now. <laughs> so ha- slowing it down on an individual basis of what do we mean by grumpy and when does it happen? What does it look like? What usually brings it on? Or ha- And have we conditioned ourselves to expect food and to want food? Like, oh, it's noon. I should be eating lunch right now. I think I'm hungry. Uh, Or, you know, is our body like, we could take it or leave it. Uh, Mood. I would, you know, the model always goes in the same order. So circumstances, thoughts, create feelings, create actions. So a feeling's not going to create a thought, but models can definitely stack on top of each other. Like once you start down a path of, um, like a thought train uh, that's generated stress for you and then you create evidence of that stress and you're taking actions, right? Like this all can start to snowball in a bad direction for you. <laughs> so that's part of where people get thinking, no, 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 I was grumpy and then I decided to eat more and then that created the feeling of more grumpiness. So it's slowing it all down, we can examine it more closely. What about the idea of, I, I, I get this a lot for, with my clients, people talk about how if they don't eat for X amount of time, I don't know, maybe it's a couple hours, two, three hours, something like that, they will say something happens to my blood sugar, which then affects my mood. Like how, what do you, and I, this is outside of my sort of area of expertise. What, what's going on there? Is that a thing? Like does, does, is this the same thing? Like does blood sugar itself directly affect your mood or is it a matter of, a blood sugar drop changes some internal sensations and then your story about what that means changes your mood. Mm-hmm. How do you think about that? Yeah, I would think about it in the second part, but also I'm not a medical doctor. So like if you have insulin issues, that would definitely be like talk to your doctor about the, but that's another one of these things that happens of our insulin will go up and down. And so that's part of when we talk about crashes, like if we've had too much insulin and then, uh, will crash, like all of that. If you really study the nature of insulin, it's like, oh, of course this happened. Or like, yeah, it didn't help when I ate 10 Oreos. Uh, my body didn't react to that very well later. And so here are the consequences of that. The work I do with my clients is often, and then they beat themselves up for this process of what the body will do. They'll be like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have eaten the 10 Oreos. I don't know what I was thinking. Like, well, in the moment, it made sense. But yeah, the delayed gratification later of, oh, I, you know, um, I that didn't help me in the long run. Look what it did to my body. That's part of what we work on. And uh, reminding the primitive brain in the moment of like, hey, this is a bad idea right here in this moment. Let's not have these. We know where this goes. But taking out that layer of uh, I should. When my clients are like, I should on the thought line, it does not make them do anything. Telling yourself you should be doing something usually gets you the opposite result. Gotcha. Okay, look, we're going to kind of move into the home stretch here with um, with maybe some more kind of bigger bigger picture questions. Um, the first one I have for you is, uh, so you're, you said you, your PhD is in human development. Um, and, and so you're, the, the, to me, the kind of 
psychology equivalent of that is kind of like a lot of developmental psychology and kind of lifespan thinking and how things change across the lifespan. Yep. So how, I teach. <laughs> <laughs> so how does that, how does being a kind of an expert in human development and kind of the, the psychology there, how does that help you? How do you think that helps you or influences you as a coach in what you do? Like, what, what do, do you notice like specific things that you feel like that really g- gives you insights are kind of a a leg up on in terms of being helpful to people? Yeah. So I think that background really helps me have perspective that a lot of my clients don't have. So I know what's normal for every age in the lifespan. And I've studied people for a long time. And often people aren't aware of what's common for their age or just the human experience. They're like, they think they're the only ones that are going through something. There's there's probably a, a listener that's thinking, I didn't, I thought I was the only one that was standing in the kitchen eating because I was stressed or something. You know, like these examples we've given, it can feel like you're the only one if you let yourself think I must be different and I'm, there must be something different about me. Like humans have so much in common with each other and we think so many similar thoughts. Like they all boil down to very similar thoughts over and over again. Um, so thinking about the lifespan, I am often thinking about long-term, what that looks like, what uh, so how some of our childhood patterns show up when we're adults. And often my clients will say something to me like, oh, I know where this started. Or like, I know where this pattern happened or what my parents used to say about it. And uh, they're able to kind of pinpoint some of those things that have happened over time within their own lifespan. So for me, yeah, human development, it's showing up everywhere and then normalizes the whole process. So holding the space for my clients to be able to say, hey, this is normal and you're not alone. And it's really common for this to be happening. Uh, or you know, uh, teenagers, this in particular is very common for them, can be really reassuring. Right. Yeah. I feel like as a therapist, and I assume this is similar as a coach, that so much of like w- one of the biggest active ingredients in therapy has to, in my experience, is validation and kind of compassion, like it, it kind of normalizing things and, and validating people's struggles. And and it sounds like you do a lot of that too. And, and this whole idea of helping people see kind of a broader context and perspective. Uh, I wonder, do you, how much kind of does teaching people to be more self-compassionate or kind of self-understanding, like, does that come into your work with overeating? And and if so, what does that look like? Oh, yeah. So often my clients come to me, they beat themselves up with like, I should be doing this. I should, shouldn't be doing that. Uh, If I just like whip myself into shape, it goes back to that willpower of like, I can make myself do this. I'm going to force myself to do it. And part of it stems from our diet culture that we've built up, the idea that you would be on a diet or you would be really strict about what you're eating. We love that idea in our culture and almost promote it in a lot of ways. So it's kind of stripping some of that away and giving them ideas for kind things they could say to themselves You know, a lot of my clients will say, I know I could be kinder to myself, but I'm afraid if I'm too kind, I will then eat everything. And that's kind of like the reader with the um, two slices of pie. Like if I go down this route, then my then my brain will tell me that we should have three. It was like, that's not self-compassion or like that's not being kind to yourself. 
the analogy that works for a lot of my clients is thinking about toddlers and how we are kind to toddlers and we say nice things to them, but we're also firm with them. Like we don't let them do whatever they want. We say, yeah, I know that's tough, but you're still going to have to brush your teeth. (laughs) Like, yeah, like we listen and we acknowledge, which is part of the self-compassion talk that I'll do with my clients of like, hey, just say to yourself, like, yeah, this is tough. Like, if you say that to yourself, your body almost relaxes. And it's just like, you heard me. You heard that I said something to you. And you acknowledge that I said it. So if we see this with kids, like, it works on kids. It also works on ourselves um, instead of constantly yelling. Yeah, it's, I feel like it's a magic trick sometimes that I, I, kind of try to introduce this idea to people of being self-compassionate and validating themselves, just saying like, gosh, this is hard. Nobody believes me. They're like, whatever, (laughs) like it is not that simple or that's not going to do anything or, and literally without fail, every single time people are like, oh yeah, turns out like it feels really good to be compassionate with myself and everything gets a lot easier after I start doing that (laughs) because it's, it's what we do with other people. It's what we do with our toddlers. It's what we do with our friends when they're struggling. It's what we do with our spouses and partners. And, and, and for some reason we just don't believe that it'll work on ourselves, which is weird. Right. And I'll, I use that if when people can't access it for themselves, I'll be like, tell me either about your kid or your partner or somebody you love. Like, tell me what you would be telling them right now if they were experiencing this, they give me that language. Right. And I'm like, okay, so we're going to put I in this. We're just going to reframe that of what if you told yourself that? And yeah, the disbelief is like, "Mm, are you sure? And then they do it. And then they find out, Oh, self-compassion looks very different than me just letting myself do whatever I want when I want. Right. So speaking of this tension between being kind of firm with ourselves, but also compassionate, one question I want to pick your brain about is the uh, the concept of body positivity. Um, and I, I'm, I don't necessarily want uh, an answer so much as I, I'm interested to see how you think through this. Um, because it seems to me like there's a, there's sort of a tricky tension between striving to be healthier, right? Which I think we all, or most of us aspire to, and also accepting ourselves where we are. Um, so how does that tension kind of, how do you think through the concept of body positivity given those two kind of somewhat compete? I don't know, maybe they're not competing tensions. I'm not sure, but what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So it's like, we can't shame ourselves into having a healthier body. We right. can't actually do anything unless we accept the body that we have. That's where we can make changes from. It's like the acknowledgement piece, right? It's like once we accept where we are right now, then we're able to move forward with the next step and starting to tweak things and experiment. But if we pretend like where we are right now is the worst, that's the idea, especially of people who might lose 100 pounds, but their thoughts came with them. As in, let's say they lose it really quickly or they do figure out a way to follow a strict diet and just willpower their way through it. Their thoughts about themselves are still on the other side of that, and they're quite surprised when they realize, wait a minute, I'm still here, and I'm still telling myself how much I hate myself. And like that's what I was actually trying to get away from, not necessarily the 100 pounds. It was like, I thought I'd love myself if I was thin. But like You right. actually have to love yourself in order to change. 
Yeah, I like that. So it's it's really about order effects that we get the order back backwards. It's that it's not that it just ends with self that you just accept the way you are and don't do anything differently. It's that in some ways, in order to have healthy, productive change, it has to start with self-acceptance. Right. And we sell it the wrong way because we tell people, like, I'm so much happier now that I have lost weight. And you're like, you are, but you also had to still, like, be okay with where you were to then become the new version of you, the new healthier version, the person that still loves yourself, like, in a new way on the other side so like you keep following yourself and if you keep cleaning those thoughts up then you do get to evolve and become a better version of yourself right okay final question um do you have a favorite success story among people you've worked with oh yeah um i think about jillian who came to me we did a lot of over drinking work together and she was someone who in the beginning and so it's always my favorite when clients are like so I just want to um, stop drinking a little bit, but like, I'm not going to give up drinking, right? Or like, I'm, I don't want to go no sugar, no flour, but I just want to stop eating the Oreos. It's like, okay, that's how they start. Awesome. Let's start there. And then for Jillian, she continued to evolve. She was reading books about drinking and she started to view it. The work we did together, she would come to a session like, oh, I failed again. But we dissected it, we experimented with things, and she did the work of transforming slowly but surely. And then just, you know, it was one of those things came together pretty quickly at once. She felt like she was running into a brick wall again and again. And then the next session, she said, oh, wait, like it all came together. All the work we've been doing, now I get it. At the end, she wasn't even desiring alcohol, and she was like, I never thought I was going to be a person who would completely give up drinking. I just wanted to stop drinking a little bit, and we dove into so much, like cracked open so many pieces of it for her and the feelings she didn't want to feel that it was transformative. It's like, this is amazing. It's why I do coaching, and it's why I love seeing what my clients are capable of. What do you think in, in that example what do you think allowed her to persevere long enough to get to that moment where it all started to come together? Cause I think that's a common problem, right? Is that people start off and then they get discouraged and kind of give up. Like what's, if you had to say, at least for her, what was kind of the, if there was kind of a secret to her continuing to stick it out, even when it was hard. Yeah. Well, and I think it's showing up for sessions. So committing to a program that you're doing either with your therapist or with a coach, like whatever kind of work you're doing, having some external accountability to help pick you up when you're in the darkest days of it. You're like, nope, this isn't going to work. I'm going to give up on myself. But wait a minute. Caitlin believes that I can do this. A lot of my clients will say that. I get in their head and then they're like, and I remember (laughs) Caitlin says this. And so if Caitlin says that, or if Caitlin believes in me, then maybe I can believe in myself. And so that's part of what happened for Jillian. It was just like, and it like she kept showing up even if she felt embarrassed or scared or just like a failure. She's like, I'm here. (laughs) Let's, let's keep doing this. And it was like, yeah, let's keep doing it. And it paid off. Yeah. So I, I just think that is so important as someone who both uh, consumes and produces a lot of sort of what you might call self-improvement type of content. One of the things that drives me crazy about most 
sort of self-improvement. And I'm, I'm guilty of this as much as anyone else, but our bias is to think of it as a very individual endeavor. Like if you want to lose weight, it's like your thing. Like you got to like get your together and figure it out. Um, and you got to read all the dieting books and you got to go on a program and me, 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 me. Right. But, but I think it's your point about like having some external kind of support and accountability. I just think that's so, it seems like such low hanging fruit that, that we're not taking advantage of with, I think with any kind of major change, but it, it sounds like including working on overeating and, and, um, yeah, our relationship with food. So I just, I'm, I'm glad, I'm really glad you brought that up. Yeah, we will. And that's part of why I think coaching is gaining so much popularity because people are starting to see like, wait a minute, just like an athletic trainer who helps me at the gym, somebody who's a life coach could also help me like when I'm feeling discouraged and when I've given up on myself, wait a minute, maybe I need one of those too. And we're all like, yes, like once you drink the Kool-Aid of having your own coach and you're, it's just like, yeah, I can't, I did I don't imagine most big endeavors in my life without the support of a coach now. I'm like, okay, what kind of coach do I need to hire now? What's my next big project? And it's definitely going to involve a coach because we're going to get there faster. Yeah. Yeah. If nothing else, it just, it can often make it so much more efficient and faster. Um, yeah, I love it. All right, Caitlin, thank you so much. This has been really fantastic. Um, where can people go to learn more about you and your work? Yeah. So on social media, I'm at Dr. Caitlin Foss. Uh, so it's C-A-I-T-L-I-N-F-A-A-S. So two A's, F as in Frank, two A's, S as in Sam. And Dr. Caitlin Foss is my website too. I'd love for the listeners to join my email list, follow along and tell me something you learned from this episode. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Minds and Mics. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing Minds and Mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you next time.